The book of Genesis, the name Genesis means just that. Beginning. For you see, the book deals with the beginning of everything. It deals with the beginning of creation. It deals with the beginning of sin. It deals with the beginning of family, of culture, of industry. It begins, it deals with the beginning of the Hebrew nation. It deals with the beginning of just about everything that you could possibly imagine, except, 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 it does not deal with the beginning of God. <laughs> Why? Because God has no beginning. God has no beginning. He has no ending. And so, in the very beginning, at the very get-go of the Bible, God does not explain that He is he just assumes that that will be understood by me and by you. For you see, the Bible is, in a sense, the autobiography of God. Now, if you were to write an autobiography, would you spend chapters and chapters explaining that you exist? <laughs> I think not. If, if you were to write your life story, you would not spend chapters explaining your existence, trying to prove that you are. Because by very virtue of the fact that you're writing the book, that is verification, if you would, that you exist. And the more I studied this book, the Bible, the more I realized it was composed supernaturally. Sixty-six different books written by forty different authors over sixteen hundred years in three different languages on different continents and yet no contradictions. But rather a unified theme runs through the entire book from the beginning to the end. And I realize that there is divine inspiration in this book, that it is truly the autobiography of God. God wrote the book. And therefore, God does not try to explain His existence or prove His existence. It just presupposes that the author of the book exists. So the book of Genesis... The book of beginnings. The beginning of virtually everything except God. For God has no beginning. And it seeks not to prove that He exists, for that should be obvious by virtue of the fact that we hold a book that was written under divine inspiration. And so we read in verse 1, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Lots of people have problems with it right there. 
they get hung up on verse 1 of chapter 1 of Genesis. <laughs> and that presents a problem for people. I mean, if you don't agree with the opening statement, with the first sentence, there's going to be some problems with your accepting what's about to follow. And they claim that they have problems with it based upon scientific facts or understandings that say, hey, you don't really mean that you can believe this story literally, do you? That God created the heaven and the earth, and then this account that follows, this story of creation, six days of creation, now that might be a nice legend, some would say. That might be a, a, a practical parable for some people, but come on now. You can't really take this seriously. Well, let me say this from the very beginning. The Bible, this book in your hand, this book that we're studying through once again, it is not a book of science. It doesn't claim to be. But whenever it touches on issues of science, it is absolutely infallible. There is no true science that contradicts any statement that is written in the pages of this book. It is not a science book, but anytime it touches on issues that deal with science, this book proves to be absolutely true. Amazingly so. You might recall in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, God there, through the prophet Isaiah, declares that he sits upon the circle of the earth. Now keep in mind, that was written during a time when every culture, every nation, every group of people around the world believed the world was as flat as a pancake. But Isaiah 40 declares God sits upon the circle of the earth. Everybody else would say, without question, all of the wise, learned men, all of the educated people, throughout history, until relatively recently, they would say emphatically, God sits upon the circle of the earth. You see, we can't believe the Bible. The world can't be a circle. It can't be round. And then came... Christopher Columbus, and shot that understanding, the world is flat, shot it to the ground. Interesting, because in the book of Job, chapter 26, verse 7, we read again in the Bible, not only is this world that we live on a circle, Isaiah chapter 40, but in Job 26, we read, God hangs it on nothing. Come on now, they would say, for centuries. Every culture, all learned people would say, come on, hangs the earth on nothing? The learned scholars of India, the subcontinent of India, would say, we all know that the world, 
is flat and is held up on the backs of giant elephants. What do you mean the Bible says he hangs the earth on nothing? Everybody knows the earth is being held up. It's kept in place on the backs of elephants. Or even the Greeks with their philosophical prowess, reputation. They said the earth is held in place by Atlas with his bulging biceps and massive shoulders. And those in the South Sea Islands said, well, everybody knows that the earth is held up on the backs of giant tortoises. So as you travel around the world, you see, in times when the Bible was being written, they would say that's crazy, unscientific, lunacy, that the world is round and that it hangs on nothing. But sure enough, the more we learn, the more we find that the Bible was right all the time. I like that. It's not a science book, folks. But whatever it talks about that touches on science or deals with issues of science, the Bible proves to be absolutely infallible. Well, wait a minute, you say, John. This chapter 1 that we're going to get to, hopefully. <laughs> now, this is fine, people may say, to talk about spiritual truths or theology, but you can't hold to that to be literally true. Not in this day when evolution has been so embraced and is so provable. Keep in mind, evolution is at best a theory, and it is truly a bankrupt one at that. Many, many, many men of science who are not believers in Jesus Christ or not readers of the Bible have turned away from the evolutionary hypothesis because it is so bankrupt intellectually. It just doesn't hold water. It's got huge problems. Philosophically, it has a problem. The problem of first cause... Even if one embraces the evolutionary model, even if one does say, well, I believe in evolution, I believe that everything has evolved, well, the question is, evolved from what? There has to be a first cause. Wherever you choose to start your evolutionary hypothesis at, something was there. And where did that something that was there come from? There had to be something that started the process. It could not start from nothing. Something had to be there. So you can go back, back, back in your evolutionary ladder, in your hypotheses, but you have to deal with the issue ultimately of what is called first cause. You've got to deal with it. <laughs> no matter how far back you go, where did that first thing come from? whatever it is that you choose to look at as being the first thing. Oh, John, you say, that's simplistic. Because you got the same problem too. The skeptic may say to me, might say to you, 
You're going to say the first cause is God, right? Yep. Well then, I'll just turn the table on you. Where did God come from? What's the first cause of God? God has no first cause. God always was, always is, and always will be. Well, come on. I can't, I can't intellectually embrace that. I can't imagine that. That's crazy to think that God always was. He had to have a first cause too. So I would say, okay, I'll give that to you. It's not true, but I'll give it to you. I'll agree with you, hypothetically. Now, it's not true. But for the sake of argument, discussion, I agree with you. So God came from someone. And if that be true, then God is accountable to that one that made him. But you're still accountable to the one that made you, you see. So if God came from some other God or creator, which is not true, but just for the sake of discussion, then God is accountable to him. That's God's problem. But you still have the problem because God created you, you see. So even if somebody wants to use the first cause argument against me or against you, we say, well, that's God's problem if somebody created him. But the fact of the matter is, we are still accountable to the one that created us. And now we are getting to the root issue. Romans chapter 1. If you're not familiar with it, you should make a note of this in your margin. Because Romans chapter 1 says what the real issue is. And that is, Paul declares under the inspiration of the Spirit, that men, when they knew God, would not acknowledge Him as God, neither were they, what? Thankful. And so their foolish minds became darkened. Men who knew that there is a Creator did not want to acknowledge that there truly was a Creator, so they began to purposefully, the Bible says, suppress the truth. Romans chapter 1. Squish it. Why is that? Squishing the truth because men do not want to be accountable. And Romans 1 goes on to say that in suppressing the truth, man was then able to follow his own depraved desires and do the stuff that his own sad, sad nature wanted to do. Depravity kicked him into that position of denying deity. Now that's the issue. See, if I say that there is not a creator, then I'm not responsible to that creator, and I can do what I want to do. I can, if I think that I came from the animal kingdom through the evolutionary hypotheses and the process, if I came from slime, I can act like slime, and I can live in slime all the time. I can live like a dog and die like a hog, and nobody can tell me any different. For you see, if I came... If I came from the goo and to the zoo and now I'm me and you're you and we can just say, hey, don't bug me, man. I'm going to be a what? Party animal. I'm going to party hardy. I'm going to do what I want to do because there is no God. I just came from the goo. And Romans 1 says that's the real issue. 
Men innately, intuitively knew that there was a God, but did not want to acknowledge Him as God, so they suppressed the truth, and they were turned over to all kinds of dark and depraved activities. The evolutionary hypothesis does not deal with the issue of first cause. It can't. The evolutionary hypothesis, in reality, has a spiritual basis to it. Romans chapter 1 tells you and me. And that is the suppressing of truth. What truth? Paul in Romans chapter 1 says that all of creation testifies of the reality of a creator. Psalm 19 declares the heavens declare the glory of God. There is no land in which their language is not heard. And I am so tempted to go off into a discussion on the grandeur and glory of the heavens and talk about the things of the universe that just blow my mind and convince me that there's got to be a Creator. How, how could it not be? But I'm going to fight that temptation. That's for another seminar, another retreat, another discussion. But the heavens declare the glory of God. Paul says creation, Romans chapter 1, all around human beings overwhelmingly prove to people that there's got to be a creator, you see. But men suppress that truth, not wanting to be accountable. Evolution, bankrupt. It doesn't deal with the issue of first cause. Evolution, secondly, bankrupt, for you see it violates the most foundational, fundamental principles, laws of known science. For example, one of the most important laws of science, a linchpin, a foundation for all of science, is the second law of thermodynamics. And you say, what's the second law of thermodynamics? It's not a hypothesis, it's not a theory, it's a foundational law, it's a basic principle. And the second law of thermodynamics upon which all of science is built simply says this, everything is going from order to disorder. <laughs> everything. Now you can verify that very simply. Look at your teenager's bedroom. You can go in there, Mom, and you can straighten it up, and you can clean it out, and guess what? It goes from order to disorder. If I get a sheet of plywood and get a bag of marbles, and I take those marbles and form a horse out of those marbles and put it on the sheet of plywood, just a flat sheet of plywood, and put these marbles in such a way that I depict a horse... And I take that piece of plywood and put it in the back seat of my Volkswagen Bug and I drive around town. In a half hour, as I go through time and space, going through the Rogue Valley, driving my car, let me ask you, when I stop the car, will the horse be more intricate? Will the horse become even finer in detail, more elaborate artistically? Or will there be a bunch of marbles just slid all around and end up in the crack of the seat of my back seat in the car? Well, what's going to happen? 
Everything you know goes from order to disorder. All of science is based upon that fact. Evolution violates that. Evolution declares that things are going from disorder to greater order. From simplicity to complexity. It's crazy. And that's why so many scientific thinkers, men that are honest in science, are saying, hey, there's some real problems here with the evolutionary theory. And not the least of which, it violates the second law of thermodynamics. It just doesn't, the universe doesn't work that way. It's not getting more orderly. It's not growing in complexity. But everything is winding down. Well, John, that might be your viewpoint, and maybe a couple of scientists so-called, but hey, man, the great thinkers and the great minds, they embrace evolution, do they? Perhaps the greatest scientific thinker in history, rated by Discover Magazine as numero uno, ahead of Albert Einstein and Leonardo da Vinci and other great minds throughout history. The big kahuna, according to Discover Magazine, the keenest scientific mind in history, was a guy by the name of Sir Isaac Newton. Newton was mocked at because his contemporaries couldn't believe that he believed that there really was a God that created the world in six days. He embraced the Genesis 1 story. He believed it. They mocked him for this simplistic thinking. One day, Isaac Newton made a model of the solar system. A very detailed model of the solar system. It took up the whole front room in his house. He had his buddies come over, his colleagues, fellow science guys. And they came over in the afternoon one day and they looked at this model and were impressed because it was so detailed and so elaborate. Hey, Isaac, where did you get that thing? Isaac said, I, I, I didn't get it. Oh, man, you made that? You're quite a guy. I didn't make it. Wait a minute. Rewind. You, you, you didn't buy that and you didn't make that. Oh, somebody gave it to you. Nope. Well, where did it come from, Isaac? Nowhere. <laughs> what do you mean, nowhere? It just appeared. I didn't buy it. I didn't make it. Nobody put it here. It just appeared. Oh, come on. And suddenly those guys, they got his point. Oh, you see, these scientists of that day, these thinkers of that time, they could not and would not logically, intellectually accept the fact that a little model of the solar system could just appear. Impossible. But these same ones that couldn't accept that, accept the vastness and grandeur of the universe just suddenly uh, appears somehow. It's illogical. It's impossible. And the Bible simply says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. And the Bible says men suppress the truth because they don't want to be accountable to God. Hmm. Bottom line. 
bottom, bottom line. I know that Genesis 1 is absolutely true. I know that the story of Genesis as it relates to creation is absolutely truth and real. The reason, and this is what I do on college campuses a lot, and this is what I do with college professors from time to time. The issue is there was a man named Jesus Christ, Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And this Jesus claimed to be God incarnate, God in the flesh. <laughs> and he put his seal of approval on the Genesis creation story. He referred to Adam and Eve as being two real people, the first two people. He talks about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He talks about the creation story in that context, you see. Now, and I'll tell college kids or college profs, I'll say, now here's the deal. If Jesus is God, then He knows. He was there. So if He is God, and if He said Adam and Eve are real, then Adam and Eve are real. Well, yeah, but you're assuming He's God. Right. And that's the only issue. You can talk about science until you're blue in the face. You can engage people intellectually. You can banter with folks philosophically. You can throw facts and information and figures and all the rest. But you know what really it comes down to? And that is this, Jesus. And you take the discussion back to Jesus, always. Jesus said Adam and Eve were real. And the creation story is to be taken literally. So, Mr. Professor, the issue is, is Jesus who he claimed to be? Well, I don't think that he's who you're claiming he is. And so then you tell them that Jesus made this statement, I and the Father are one, and the people that were listening to him that day knew what he was getting at, so incensed were they that he was claiming to be deity that they picked up rocks, were ready to stone him on the spot, you see. They, they knew what he was claiming. Show us a sign, they said. You, you show us a sign to, to validate, to verify that you are who you claim to be. And Jesus said, I'm going to give you one sign and one sign only. Destroy this body. And in three days I will rise again from the dead. That's going to be it. In other words, the whole door of this understanding hinges as does our faith, swings, if you would, on the hinge of his resurrection. He said, destroy this body, and in three days I'll rise again. And guess what? He did. And then, when that professor or when that skeptic says, well, how do you know? Now you got him. Now you got him. How do you know he's risen? And you talk about the various proofs, which I won't go into tonight because we don't have the time. Get my tapes. Get evidence that demands a verdict in the bookstore. Get... Frank Morrison's book, Who Moved the Stone? But you take the argument away from all of the 
scientific intellectual debate and you put it back upon the one single issue that matters ultimately, and that is who is Jesus Christ? Is he who he claimed to be? And he is, because he validated his claims by the resurrection. And that's why Paul, this giant of an intellect, said, if Christ be not risen, we of all men are what? Most miserable. We're stuck. Who knows what's truth? Who can say, ultimately, what the answer is to all these questions? If Christ is not risen, we don't know if He really was who He claimed to be and is who He says He is, and that is God in the flesh. But if He has risen as He has, then that settles the question. Are you with me? Gang, Applegate family, keep on taking the discussion back to the person of Jesus Christ. That's the key. And he talked about Adam and Eve literally. Therefore, the story is to be taken in that way. Well, uh, first one. <laughs> so in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. Now this intrigues me. Because the Hebrew phrase here, jot it down, this phrase, without form and void, is tohu va bohu. And you're saying, so what? Listen, the phrase is an important one. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And suddenly, the earth was without form and void. Tohu va bohu. Now in Isaiah, jot it down, read it later, Chapter 45, verse 18. Listen. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God Himself that formed the earth. He hath established it. He created it not in vain. Or tohu vabohu is the literal Hebrew phrase. God, who created the heaven, who formed the earth, he says, he did not create it, tohu vabohu. Same exact Hebrew phrase. So then I think, well, wait a minute. If Isaiah 45, 18 says that God did not create it without form and void, but Genesis 1, 2 says the earth was without form and void, tohu vabohu, what's going on here? I believe what's going on here is this. God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth became wiped out. It became without form. It became void. Because, you see, I believe it was at this time that an event took place. It's described in Isaiah chapter 14, in Ezekiel chapter 28, and that is there was an archangel in heaven by the name of Lucifer, who launched a rebellion against God in heaven, was kicked out of heaven and came to earth, where he is now called the God of this world. So he's kicked out of heaven along with one-third of the angels who followed him in his dumb rebellion. And they came to the earth. The earth was impacted hugely. 
suddenly, if you would, hell hits earth, in a sense. And the earth that was created, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, but now the earth suddenly becomes without form. It becomes void. It is wiped out. And I believe personally, I have a strong personal conviction. Others may not agree. And everybody has the right to be wrong. <laughs> but I do believe that this explains so much. God did not create the world that way initially, but it becomes that way in verse 2, you see. And it could very well be, very well be, that that is when Lucifer is now cast out of heaven, becomes Satan, becomes the devil, and hits the earth where he is the God of this world. And now the world becomes a showdown, a battleground between God and between the rebel, Satan. So what does God do? The earth, without from and void, darkness was upon the face of the deep. But the Spirit of God, I like this, verse 2, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. God always is coming in on something that's been messed up by the enemy. I like that. God is always coming in on something that was messed up by the enemy. And here the world is a mess. It's without form and void. That means it's wiped out. It's wasted, we would say today. It's wasted. And God begins to move. And God said, verse 3, let there be light. Or literally in the Hebrew, light be. And light was. So what's happening now in this story? We're seeing the recreation of planet Earth. Well, you say, then, John, if you're suggesting that there was an original creation and it became without form and void, and now the rest of the story is the recreation, then what was that original creation consisting of? Beats me. <laughs> Don't know. We could speculate, but God has not seen fit to tell us, evidently. So I just sort of leave it there. But now we see the recreation. And it begins with God declaring, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw, verse 4, the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness, night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. By the way, notice the phraseology. The evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. The evening and the morning were the third day. That's still the way the Jewish people reckon their time, their days. It starts in the evening. It goes from darkness to morning. It goes from darkness to light till the next evening. I like that. We start our day in the morning, if you would. We go from morning to evening. We start out, oh, it's a happy morning, and it ends up dark, and we're weary. 
I like the Hebrew way of reckoning time a whole lot better. They still do to this day, the Jewish people. They reckon their days from evening, starts dark, and then gets brighter and lighter, you see. It goes from darkness to light. I like that. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, now, now please note this. Because in these verses, in these first five verses, folks, I now understand. I now get what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And I say, hey, this describes that. Genesis 1, 1 through 5 describes that. What do you mean? In the beginning... God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth became without form and void, wiped out. And the Spirit of God began to move upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God divided the darkness from the light, and He saw it was good. That's your story. That's the story of you being a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, what do you mean? We were created in God's image. And then we were what? Wiped out. We became without form and void. Sin wiped you out. You were dead in sin. Wiped out because of sin. God made you in His image originally. But we became wiped out because of our own sin and depravity. We were in the dark, man. But the Spirit of God does what? The Spirit of God moves. We didn't seek Him. There is none that seeks God. No, not one, the Bible says. He just moved in to you. He moved in on me with His kindness and grace and mercy according to His sovereign will. He moves, the Spirit of God moves in upon the face of the waters. Now you know, you that have studied the Word, that water is a symbol, a type of the Scriptures. Now you are clean. For the Word which I have spoken to you, Jesus said, Ephesians 5 says, we are washed by the water which is the Word of God. Are you with me? In Bible typology, water is a symbol of the Word. So watch this. The Spirit of God moves. How does He move? Upon the face of the water. Suddenly, you're hearing a Bible study. You listen to a radio show on K-Apple, or you see a TV program, or you talk to a buddy, whatever it might be, and somebody begins to share with you the Word, and the Spirit of God begins to move. You're wiped out. There's a voidness. There's an emptiness in your heart. There's a blackness in your life. But suddenly, the Spirit of God begins to move upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And you go, oh, I get it. I see it. And the light goes on. And you're born again. And then God separates the darkness from the light. And good things begin to happen. This is a picture, not just of creation physically, but of what happens in your life and in my life according to God's sovereign grace and mercy. It's perfect. I love it.
Well, verse 6. God said, And let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let there be an expanse, a sky in the middle of the waters. And let this sky, this atmosphere, this firmament, this expanse, let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And that should not be capitalized as it may be in your King James Version. He just called it heaven. Heaven refers in the Bible to both the atmosphere around us, the stars over us, and the destiny that's awaiting us, the place that will be when we leave this earth, you see. He calls this expanse heaven, or we could say atmosphere. Interesting. And the evening and the morning were the second day. Now, now think with me. This is fascinating to me. What's being talked about is this. When God recreated the world, you have the globe here, the earth here. Okay? Then you have the atmosphere, the firmament, the heaven. And then above the atmosphere, you have water. Because the atmosphere separates water from water. God makes that clear here when he says, let there be, verse 6, a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the water from the water. So you have water on the earth and then you have sky and then you have water that's around the atmosphere. Which means that the earth having a water canopy around its atmosphere would be a great big greenhouse. It means the whole world would be of uniform temperature. It means that things wouldn't get wiped out by the ultraviolet rays. It's SP40, this water canopy. It's a great big nose coat. Sunscreen. But it would provide the world to have uniform temperature and the whole earth would be like a great big Maui. Now this is what happened, I believe, when the flood came. The water canopy collapses and deluges the earth. The water canopy comes down and the earth suddenly changes radically and men are no longer living like they once did long days, as we shall talk about shortly in Genesis 5. But lifespan goes down. Cataclysmic changes take place. All kinds of atmospheric and environmental and ecological changes immediately happen because of the collapsing of the water canopy that once kept the whole world tropical. Now, if that be true, we would expect to find remnants or fossils of tropical vegetation in Antarctica or in the Arctic Circle. And guess what? We do. We do. Science agrees that at one point, those areas, the whole world was in a tropical condition. And here God gives, I believe, a very wonderful and simple explanation. There was a water canopy. And then in the flood, because of man's sin, oh, we'll talk about that story in about ten minutes when we get to Genesis 8, 9, and 10. 
But the water canopy collapses, see, and that causes the flood. Hmm. God said, verse 9, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land also appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters called he seas. God saw that it was good. Whenever I see seas, I think it's good too. (laughs) Seas candy. God called the water area now seas and the dry land He called earth. And God said, verse 11, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. Hey, now we see life appearing. Day one, there's light, darkness, day and night. Day two, there's this firmament being formed, atmosphere. Day three, life appears. Life appears. Why the third day? Why does the fruit appear? Why does life come on day three? Because Jesus Christ, folks, is the first fruit who rose again from the dead on the, what? Third day. Very simple. He rose again from the third day. He is the first fruit. We have life because of what took place on day three in in His resurrection story. The third day, life appears. God said, verse 14, Let there be lights now in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. Let them be for lights in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Verse 16, God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He, he made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the fourth day. In that fourth day, God makes the sun and the moon, the greater light and the lesser light. I was in Seattle on Tuesday, and I was doing a radio talk show up there, and somebody called in and said to me, John, didn't Jesus teach us that we are gods? And I said, what do you mean? He said, tell me, John, didn't Jesus say that he is the light of the world? I said, yeah. And tell me this. Didn't Jesus also declare that we are the light of the world? Yeah. 
Well, if He's the light and we're the light, then we're all the same light. Therefore, we must be God's. And I said, sorry, not so, not true. Here's the deal. Now listen carefully. Jesus is the light. He also said we are to be lights. But He is the light inherently. We are reflectors of the light, you see. He is the sun. Not just the S-O-N, but in the analogy, He is the S-U-N. We are the lesser light. We're the moon that shines in the dark society that we live in, shining our own light. No. What do we do? We reflect His light, just like the moon at night. That's you. That's me. We're like the moon, you see. (laughs) And what we do is we reflect His light. We don't have light. We just reflect His light. And it is a sign in the night in the dark culture in which we live, we reflect His light. But wait a minute. I was in East Jerusalem with Tammy a couple of weeks ago. And we were there looking up at the stars and we saw something interesting. We watched the moon suddenly get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. It was an eclipse. What is an eclipse? Simply this. You have the sun shining on the moon sun that is light, the moon that reflects light, and then what do you see? The world. The world gets between the sun and the moon and eclipses it. And to whatever extent the world gets between the sun and the moon will diminish the light that reflects from the moon. The same thing is true with me, with you. He's the sun, yeah, and we're the moon. But wait a minute. To whatever degree I allow the world to come in will diminish that light proportionately. Let me ask you this. If you were going to chart your own life tonight, would you be a full moon or a three-quarter moon, half moon, quarter moon, Sliver moon, eclipsed moon. See, it all depends on how much of the world that you allow to creep in and come between you and the sun. In any given day, how much of the world will I allow come between me and the sun, Jesus Christ? That is going to be to the degree that I will be eclipsed. Or, if I don't allow the world to come in between me and Jesus, I can shine. I want you guys to be moonies. Uh, not moonies in that way, but but moonies <laughs> to be to be moon people to be you know you know what I'm saying to be full moons not to moon people I didn't say that I did not say that I said to shine to shine brightly oh man by not by, by not allowing by not allowing the world to get between you. And the sun. I better move on here quickly. (laughs) And so there is a great light, the sun, and the lesser light, the moon. And the lesser light was there to shine in the night, reflecting the light of the greater light, the sun. And God said, verse 20, Let the waters 
bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the firmament of heaven. And God created whales, and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful. Multiply, fill the waters in the seas and let the fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, verse 24, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind. Cattle and creeping things and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. God made the beast of the earth after his kind and cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Notice this. This deals a death blow to theistic evolution. That is the idea that God sort of started the process up and then let the species evolve one into another. The language here in the Hebrew is emphatic. After their kind, after his kind, after its kind. In other words, there can be changes within a species, but not changes from one species to another species. After their kind, after his kind, after its kind. And God is declaring here very emphatically that what happens here is animals species stay within the species category that they are in. You can have mutations within species, but not transmutations from species to a different species. You can do all kinds of stuff with dogs. You can breed them and crossbreed them, and you can get all kinds of interesting sizes and colors and shapes and characters, but you're always going to have a dog. You're never going to get a cat. You'll never get a cat Crossbreeding dogs. You can get all kinds of changes within the dog species, but you're never going to get a cat. Impossible. Well, yeah, but given enough time, really? Did you know scientists have been able to breed fruit flies? These guys, anybody have fruit flies in their houses ever? It's amazing. Fruit flies multiply with great rapidity. And scientists have been able to breed fruit flies into millions of generations. Millions of generations. And guess what? They're still fruit flies. Millions of generations have passed, and never does one suddenly pop out and be a honeybee or a hummingbird. You can do all kinds of stuff. And scientists have done this, and I have a book on that. The experiments with fruit flies trying to prove that if you can get enough generations, millions of generations, there will be eventually the transmutation. There will be a change, and yet it doesn't happen. There's changes within the fruit fly species, but you still have fruit flies, and they've done millions and millions of generations, and they still have fruit flies. By the way, when you talk about time, here's something for you to think about, to put in your craw. 
See, time is the name of the game for the evolutionist. It requires great, 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 great amounts of time, billions and billions of years. But did you realize there's some huge problems with that? The sun loses 1,200,000 tons of mass every second. The sun loses 1,200,000 tons of mass per second. Every second, boom, 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 boom. 1,200,000 tons each second. The evolutionist would say to us, that evolution by its very nature requires billions and billions and billions of years to produce life on earth. Well, that means you have to go back billions and billions of years to give the amount of time necessary to evolve life on earth. So you have to add those tons of mass to the sun. One million two hundred thousand tons of mass every second. For billions and billions, now we're talking huge sun. <laughs> Not only huge in size, but hot. <laughs> close proximity to earth, so close would be its proximity and so hot would be its temperature that everything and anything would fry immediately on the surface of the earth. In other words, if you go back billions of years and give all this time needed for evolution, it can't work by virtue of the fact of what astronomers tell us about the sun itself. Well, whether you're talking about the sun or fruit flies, it just doesn't work. And God here says clearly, He says, every species is going to be after its own kind. Then, verse 26, God said, now mark this, this is important stuff. God said, verse 26, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Oh, whoa. Did you hear that? Let us make man in our image. God said, let us. Now, I asked a rabbi not too long ago, what do you do with this verse? Why did God say, let us? Doesn't this hint at a trinity? Three in one, one but three? Let us. And this rabbi that I was talking to sort of said, well, you know, I, I, he says, I, I view that as being the majestic we. You know, like the Queen of England says, let us have lunch. And it just means she's going to have lunch. Or, you know, let us go to the palace. It means she's going to go. It's called the majestic we. And I said, do you really believe that? I said, no. <laughs> because you see, there's a problem with the majestic we. It cannot be let us make man. Because you see, and God said, let us make man. The word God is Elohim. Ever hear that word before, Elohim? It means God. It's in the plural. God singular is El. Dual is Ella. Three or more plural means Elohim. The very word God in the Hebrew is Elohim. It means three or more. It's plural. So you have 
Elohim, God, said, let us make man in our image. And how did he make us? He made us in this way. We are also a trinity in a sense. We are a triune being in a way. We are body, soul, and spirit. Just like He is Father, Son, and Spirit, we are body, soul, and spirit. We are made in His image. We have three... The body relates to the physical. The soul is my mind and my emotions. It relates to people. The spirit relates to the eternal. It relates to God. It's that part that's in every man that understands that there really is a Creator and longs for a spiritual relationship with Him. Now, animals, they have bodies, physical, and they have souls, that is, minds and emotions. Man, my cat really has a mind. My dog has emotion. They have, they have a soul, if, if you would. They have minds and emotions. But they do not have a spirit. You will never see a dog, before he plows into his elbow, bow his head and pray. Bless this elbow today, Father. You'll never see that. You'll never see a cat worship except himself. You'll never see, you know, you'll just never see it. Because they're not made in God's image. Man is body, soul, and spirit. Man is a spiritual being, you see. Elohim, God. We'll talk more about this in the language that so wonderfully pictures God as being a triune being when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 6 shortly. So, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them, that is man, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, verse 28. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth and subdue it. Hey, stop right there. Subdue it. Subdue it. This is before the fall. God creates man, and before the fall, before things go haywire because of the fall of man, God gives an assignment to the man. He says, subdue the earth. Subdue it from what? Why? From Satan. This was man's destiny initially. Now God knew that man would fall, of course, but God says from the very beginning here, here's the deal. This little rock called earth is the place where there's to be a cosmic showdown between me and this rebel, Satan. So, I'm going to use you, man. You get to partner with me. You get to be part of the program, part of the process. You're going to be my instrument to subdue the earth and to drive out the enemy. This was the assignment given to man. Certainly, primarily to have fellowship with God, but that includes being used by God in this process of subduing the earth. He had a job to do. 
God doesn't need man, but God allowed the privilege that was granted to man to be involved in God's eternal purposes and program. And God says to the man, here's what I want you to do. Subdue the earth. How? Watch this. By being fruitful and multiplying. How are you going to subdue your earth, your world? Your family? Your own world, which seems to be in the grasp and grip of the enemy? How do you subdue it? Be fruitful. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Not speaking words that are critiquing, gossiping, fault-finding, cynical, doubtful, but rather speaking words in your home and to your wife or to your hubby, to your friends, to classmates, whoever it might be. You speak words of fruitfulness, of love. For the power of life and death is in the what? Tongue. And either you'll be subduing the enemy by speaking kind words, loving words, affirming words, or you will be adding to the fire of hell breaking out in your family by critiquing, criticizing, snide remarks, finding fault with the church, finding fault with your neighbor, finding fault with this and that and the other having opinions about everything, lighting your world on fire, the fire of hell. James talks about the tongue being the instrument of fire. You will either be fruitful or you will be frightening. You will either be subduing or you will be an instrument by which hellish things will be brewing. Talked to a family a while ago, a few days ago really. And they're now reaping the results of mom and dad just being cynical. Just cynical. They had opinions about the church and about this and the country and the politicians and this and the other. And all these kids ever heard was mom and dad putting down. And now mom and dad cannot figure out why their kids don't go to church. And I had to talk with them and say, could it be that you've poisoned your own well? Well, yeah, but it was just in our family. But you, you're to subdue the world in which you live, just like Adam and Eve were told to do. Subdue. Be fruitful and multiply. How do you multiply? Acts chapter 6 tells you and me, the Word of God increased and the number of disciples, what? Multiplied. When is there multiplication? When the Word is being talked about. Listen, you talk to your kids or to each other, your friends or your neighbors, you talk to them about the Word and you're going to see multiplication, life. And you love, you really love. Love covers a multitude of sins. You just love and you're going to see fruitfulness and suddenly the world in which you live is going to be subdued. It's going to be won back from the enemy. On the other hand, you don't talk about the Word and you don't talk about loving things, but rather you find fault and you share your opinions on stuff constantly. And man, you are going to bring hell into your home and your kids or your own heart or people around you are going to become just bitter and burned and bummed.
Jesus said, if I tell my disciples to be quiet, the rocks will cry out. We now know, interestingly enough, that every solid object retains the imprint of sound waves. The very principle that allows a CD to be pressed or a tape to be made, that same principle affects this chair, this microphone, my tennis shoe. What are you saying? Jesus could have been hinting at this when he said, look, even if my guys quieted this, the rocks would cry out. And I ask you this question. I challenge you, I, I double dare you to live tomorrow as though everything that you say to your wife or to your husband is being recorded and will be replayed. Everything. Replayed to who? To the whole church. Amen. Live one day. <laughs> Live one day. I challenge you, just tomorrow, just take Friday, make it a fun, freaky Friday, and say, I'm going to live the whole day like every word that I share, everything that I say is going to be replayed in the amphitheater Sunday morning and go over K-Apple throughout the community. I tell you, this is the way to live. To live in that way where you think every word I say is being recorded and will be heard. Because that's really the truth. Every word that you say is either going to be producing life or death, fruit or fire. It's real simple. John, why are you telling this? Because like you, I care about my kids. I like kids. I want my kids to do well. I want, I want the church to do well. I want you to do well. I want to do well. And I realize that, man, I'm either going to be subduing or I am going to be causing hell to spread further in my own life and family. Kids that grow up hearing mom and dad talk about the Word and how good God is and how much they appreciate fellowship and prayer and praise. It's amazing what happens to those kids. They plug in and they worship God and walk with Him all their days. But people who hear other things, it takes a toll. Your world. Subdue it. By being fruitful, which is love, and multiplying, which is the Word of God. That's what you get to do, Adam and Eve. Subdue the earth. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, fowl of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, every tree which is in the fruit of a tree yielding seed, and to you it shall be for food. And to every beast of the earth, every fowl of the air, to everything that creeps upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw that everything that he made was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Our God is awesome. 
He could have said, food? Hmm, take a pill. He could have gave me a pill. He could have had one great big health food store, you know, and said, here's vitamins and here's protein pills and here's enzymes and that's what you get. Live on that. But that's not what he does. He says, not a pill, here's a thrill. You can have anything that you wish to. It's all made for you, with one exception as we shall see. But it's all made for you. All of the colors and textures and tastes. Bananas and mangoes and guavas and avocados and tomatoes and carrots and celery and all kinds of stuff that's no longer around because of the fall of man. But it was all there then. God says, hey, I want you, I want you just to have a kick. I want you to have a great time. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from where? Above. The Bible says in Psalm 103, He satisfies our mouth with what? Good things. The Bible says He has given us all things freely to enjoy. If God, as He has blessed you, blessed me, we should say, ah, oh, thank you, Lord. You're so good. Jesus said, if, if you guys being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good gifts to His? I love giving my kids gifts. And I'm evil. The Father says, I want to give my kids all kinds of stuff. Well, then how come I haven't gotten that, you may say. I've been waiting for that for a long time. It's not a good gift. If it was good, it would come your way. If it was good for you, He would give it to you. God will give to you every good and perfect gift. He will withhold no good thing, the Scripture says, from those that love Him. Now, you do love Him. So He's going to hold back nothing which is good. So if you haven't gotten what you've been hoping for, then he sees at this time it wouldn't be good for you. It wouldn't be good for you. So God here says, I've made man subdue the earth and have a blast at the same time. All these things I've sent your way. All these things for you to enjoy today. And thus, the heavens and the earth were finished. Don't worry, I'm not going to go very far. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Finally, before we go our way tonight, on the seventh day God rested. So should you. We get to rest did you realize that God would later on say to His people, Israel, this is important. Life is precious, so don't kill. Relationships are precious, so don't commit adultery. Parents are precious, so honor them. And He says, rest is precious, so keep the Sabbath day. Did you realize that no culture, no people on the face of the earth at that time when the law was given from Mount Sinai, these Ten Commandments which deal with the preciousness of life, that no culture at that time had ever taken a day off as a regular practice. No one even thought of that. No one ever did that. People, in old times, people didn't say, thank goodness it's Friday, we're off. 
You didn't take a day off. No one would even think of such a thing. It's impractical, impossible in an agricultural world. You can't take a day off, they would say. And God says, hey, people, I want you to rest. And that's not just the law. It's before the law here in the creation story. You know what? It's real wisdom to take one day in seven where you really don't do a thing but rest and relax and reflect on the goodness of God and renew relationships at home and rejoice in what He has done. Rest and reflect and relax and renew and rejoice. But you say, I'm not tired on... on, on, I'm not tired... Was God tired on the seventh day? Was He going, am I pooped? Man, am I tired. This creating stuff has really drained me. Is that what God was doing? He wasn't tired. But He was saying to you and me, I'm your dad, and here's a key to navigate life successfully. One day in seven, you shut it down. You make it real special. You do a whole different thing. But I can get ahead if I if I if I just do a little bit of work on that on that seventh day or that Sabbath day or that special day, whatever day it might be. I can get ahead. No, you think you can. But like the old Fram oil filter commercials with the mechanic, a torn up engine over here, and he holds a Fram oil filter in his hand. He says, You can pay me now. Six bucks for the oil filter. Or you can pay me later when your car blows up and everything goes haywire. I'm convinced of this. And and as an observer of life and as a Bible teacher and as a pastor for 20 years, I'm going to tell you something that's true. If you don't take a Sabbath day, it's going to catch up with you. Either emotionally, you'll start to frazzle. And you'll become like Samson who laid his head on Delilah's lap because he was weary. He was tired. Ever wonder how he could sleep through the looming of his hair? The guy was pooped. Real simple. Wasn't thinking right. I don't need a Sabbath day. I'm Sammy bulging biceps and herky shoulders and the judge of Israel for decades. And then he falls on the lap of Delilah. And I am convinced that many people, men particularly, they fall. Not men exclusively, not today, but men particularly. They fail because they're tired, because they haven't kept the Sabbath day. And they find themselves putting their head in the lap of a Delilah. You'll fail emotionally or you'll fail physically. I'm convinced that a lot of people have physical problems that they wouldn't have if they took one day of seven and said, I'm not going to do my normal stuff. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to create. I'm going to rest and relax and be refreshed and be renewed in my family life. And I'm just going to make it a whole different kind of day. I'm going to shut it down. I'm going to turn it off. 
even if I have to force myself to. I'm convinced that there are all kinds of physical problems that come because we don't do what God said we get to. Not got to, get to. Ought to. I'm convinced that emotionally a lot of people are seeing psychiatrists today and taking all kinds of medications and pills because they violated the Sabbath day. They just don't think straight anymore. They're just mentally fried. I'm convinced spiritually a lot of people have backslid because, man, it's the weekend. Let's grab our powerboat. we got places to go and things to do. And man, go, go, go. And suddenly, uh, spiritually, they collapse. God says, here's a real good thing that I'm going to let you do. You take one day and devote it to me entirely. Relax, rest, be refreshed, rejoice, reflect, be renewed in family life, but make it special. I'm not saying what you should or shouldn't do on that day. That's where the Pharisees erred, I believe. They tried to legislate what should be done in a way that ought not to be. But the principle that God lays out is a healthy one. It has a very practical application for you, for me. Something else here, and then we'll go, and that is this. A lot of times people ask me, John, what's your opinion speaking of family on birth control? I get that asked from time to time, not infrequently. It's come up on the Bible Answer Man recently. And I understand different positions, but here's mine. God created And he gave you and me the ability to miraculously create. Every one of us, for the most part, have the ability to work a miracle, the creation miracle of procreation, that is of producing children. It's an amazing miracle that God has given to man. God created and God gave you the ability to create too. But after six days, God looked at what he made and said, it's very good and that's enough. (laughs) Was he out of ideas? No. Could he have kept on going? Absolutely. But God said, that's enough. It's very good. And I believe when it comes to creating, procreating, that we too can follow our Father's example. We can look at what's been made and say, that's enough. (laughs) I do not feel that we need to keep on creating, if you would, indefinitely. I do believe we can follow in the footsteps of our Father and look and see as the Spirit guides us and we seek Him and then follow those impressions on our heart and we can say, yeah, that's, that's very good and say, let's stop creating. So I do believe that that birth control is a valid option for the believer because my father stopped creating too. Now, I say that with this footnote. Those of you that embrace that particular view, it's, it's funny how many people 
don't believe in that until they have about three or four kids. And suddenly they start to change their theology. It's amazing to me. I've talked to a lot of people who said, oh, we don't believe in any kind of, you know, we just however many kids God wants. And then after about five or six or so, they begin to say, well, I'm going to rethink my position on this a bit. I do believe, though, that certain kinds of birth controls really uh, do allow you and allow me to stop the creation process. Other kinds of birth controls kill the creation process. And I won't go into that any more than to simply say you should be aware that there are birth controls that are preventing creation and there are birth controls that are destroying creation. And that I would warn you against or caution you about. Well, we're going to stop there tonight and we'll continue on racing through chapters 2 through 8 in our study next time.